0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, still a part of the Agora Podcast Network. least I think it is. I haven't been told otherwise. I'm still your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm still a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 176, and it will be on religious fasting because that's just the kind of nerd I am. Also, it's been a minute. And I have a couple of things to personally share before I start this episode. A lot of you wrote to me asking me if I was okay because it's been so long and I sort of disappeared from the podcasting world without a word of goodbye. And I'm suddenly ending all of my sentences in upward inflections. <laughs> I think I kind of reached a wall from last September until about two weeks ago We have been ridiculously nomadic. We went from Spain to Pennsylvania for TudorCon and a visit. That was October. While we were there, we decided that we were officially moving back home. So then we went to California for an extended visit, which had been planned anyway. But having made the decision to move back home, we decided to sell our house in the mountains of Southern California, which really kind of broke my heart. Um, It was our first house that we bought. Right before the market crash it wasn't the best timing, but um, you know it was a special place to me, it still is. Um, and then we went back to Pennsylvania for Christmas, and then back to Spain to pack up our lives and say goodbye to our friends. And at that point, I was professionally contracting with two different library groups, which is my career. I work with libraries on technology and journal procurement, all that kind of stuff. So I was working really crazy hours, which I said was to keep my mind off of all of the things I had to do with the move. And then we came back to Pennsylvania. Also, during this period, I was dealing with a thyroid nodule, which came back indeterminate. So I had to have follow-ups on that. Um, It's all benign, so it's all fine. And then, ladies, when you reach a certain age, you get your mammogram. Um, That came back with a lump. So I needed – that was last August. So I needed to follow up on that too. Also, all fine. So now we're back in Pennsylvania by March, staying in Airbnbs while we house hunt, which was no small feat in this economy. It was great when we were selling, but not so much on the other side. Um, but it all started to come together the first week of May. My medical tests were all over by then. We closed on a house the second week of May. And by now, we are pretty much moved in. I cut my work hours back. So I was just working one job. Um, also in May, have a much more doable schedule. So here we are. I have to say also that I have lost three things in all of the moving. I don't say completely lost because I have no doubt that they are packed up in a bag or a purse or a wallet or something somewhere, but rather misplaced. One of those things, one of those three things is the memory card with the talks from last year's Tudorcon on it. I distinctly remember seeing it at the first Airbnb we stayed at when we came back in mid-February. I swear I remember seeing it there. Um and then I don't remember it after that. So we'll just have to see when it turns up. If it turns up. I feel terribly about it. Um but there we are. Speaking of doing things, TutorCon and the Tutor Planner, both of which are happening. So the first thing for the Tutor Planner, I did an Indiegogo, which was successful again this year. Thank you so much if you supported it. Um, if you didn't and you would like to get a Tutor Planner for next year, 2023, um, you can go to the Indiegogo site. I'll have a link in the show notes. Um, because it was successful, they let you keep your campaigns up after the official end date if if it was fully funded. Which mine was, so I can keep my campaign up there, which I will do as long as I still have planners. So I made my initial order and when I sell out of those, I will pull it down. Um, but as long as I still have ones to fulfill, I will keep it up there. Um, they do sell out every year, I'll say that. So, you know, while I know it might be weird to buy a calendar for twenty twenty three, it's just the way it is. Um and yeah, you don't want to have too much FOMO in December, or maybe you do. I don't know. But the Goes up. As long as I still have um, planners to sell, I will keep it up. And then when I run out, I'll take it down. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. The next thing, TutorCon, is happening in like just over three months from September 9th to 11th. Now that I'm all settled, I'm putting more time into planning it. And I actually, when I stop to think about it, and it moves from being like, a thing to do to actually why I'm doing it, I get really excited about it because it really is so much fun, you guys. It's like three days with the best tutor nerd friends that you didn't even know you wanted to meet and you wanted to know. Um, It's funny because I get really caught up in like the activities to do to plan it, right? There's like this speaker to arrange and there's this thing to do with the caterers and blah, 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 blah. But when I actually like just stop and see people meeting new friends and learning things and, you know, when I introduce speakers and I think, gosh, like, these are people that I'm just so moved that everybody came to this little spot, beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, at the winery next to the Renaissance Fair. It's a gorgeous venue. Um... You know, everybody came to this spot to talk about Tudor history and to meet other Tudor history friends and to learn from people who are studying this and who are publishing on it. And it's just such such a wonderful experience. And I'm just so honored that I get to be part of it. And I'm just so moved that you you all trust me to put this on and you come and and it's always awesome. And yeah, so I hope I see you there. Englandcast.com slash TutorCon. will get you all the information you need on that. Englandcast.com slash TutorCon. All right, you guys, this has gone on for so long. If you have listened to me for this long, just stop and get a glass of water or something. like that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Personal share over. So let's talk about religious fasting. Like I said, that's just the kind of nerd I am. I've been wanting to learn more about fasting in the 16th century for a long time, definitely since I did the series on the Reformation, because it's one of those practices that were Catholic, but they held over into Elizabethan England. And I was interested in learning more about how the attitudes towards fasting changed, how fasting came to be accepted as part of the Anglican Church, even the Puritan Church. It's pretty hard to find information in popular sources specifically on fasting. It's kind of those one of those like really obscure subjects that doesn't get a lot of love. But I did find this paper, "Fasting in England in the 1560s: A Thing of Nought," by Peter Ivor Kaufman from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill, which I leaned on heavily. Not just for his work, but also the other sources that he cites. So if you really want to dig into this, I will have show notes up at englandcast.com slash fasting, where you can see all of the sources. The great Elizabethan compromise on the church, the Elizabethan settlement, left many people very unhappy with the religious situation in England. It was a compromise between the Catholics and the Puritans and didn't go far enough for either side. It was really only after the restoration of the church, the, of the English Civil War, that England really started to be proud of the church being this kind of middle way. And I think now people in the Anglican church see it as this sort of, as part of them, that they are this middle way. They have this lit- liturgy that's based in Catholicism, but they're not. And and it's a really cool middle way. It's something that, that I really enjoy. Um, I'm an Episcopalian, so um, I get down with it. Anyway, people moved slowly through the first few years in the 1560s, figuring out what was too much papacy, what was too much Calvinism. There was a lot of worry and a lot of confusion about how to implement all of the new laws and what laws should even exist. There were still a lot of Catholics. James Pilkington, the Bishop of Durham, said that so many withstand the manifest truth. In the north, like Durham, Catholics, of course, were very much still practicing. Later, when there was the rebellion to try to make Mary Queen of Scots, the queen we would see mass celebrated in Durham Cathedral. Many bishops actually wanted to allow for people to negotiate between what was just part of the culture, what was par- pop culture, and what was seen as necessary for reform. There's a case of John Sanderson from Lancashire, a fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge, which is illustrative of these ongoing negotiations that had to be handled every day by all people. So fasting was seen as a Catholic superstition, but Sanderson, who was born in the 1530s, surfaces in September of 1562 in the papers of Archbishop Matthew Parker. He supposedly had given a lecture on fasting in the college chapel, and for this he was suspected of having a superstitious doctrine of fasting. People had been debating fasting for decades. Thomas Cranmer said that it was a papist superstition. Under Edward, reformers passed laws, but then Mary quickly undid those laws. The college officials spoke with Sanderson privately, telling him that he had chosen the wrong topic. And while we don't have a transcript of those remarks, we hear that he did agree to reconsider his beliefs. The vice chancellor at the university was among other senior leaders who were dissatisfied with his apology and thought that he was trivializing the whole thing. 40 years before, in 1522, just at the very start of the Reformation, five years after um, Martin Luther nails up his 95 theses, the person who would become a Calvinist leader, Holdrich Zwingli, was eating with friends when they broke the fast at Lent he would defend their freedom to choose foods to eat during Lent, to eat meat or fish. And he said that Christ had set Christians free from those superstitions, and by submitting to the doctrines of fasting, people were submitting to Rome, when that was so contrary to the freedom that Christ had promised. In the 1520s, Martin Luther would also say that observing fast did not make people pious, And while fasting would appear from time to time on early reformer papers, like the Augsburg Confessions of 1530 that would specify that fasting was not necessary, it was later cut. It seemed that the early reformers didn't want to make a big deal out of diet. Forty years later, Sanderson would respond that fasting was, quote, a thing of naught, and that drew ire from Luther and Zwingli's later followers. In 1561, Calvin wrote that it was not a thing of naught, and it shouldn't be so liberally used like Catholics. But it also might not be worth just getting rid of completely. Calvin said that fasting could prepare the mind for prayer and enable Christians to break the tyranny of flesh, and it was a practice of overcoming their base desires. Fasts also made people humble. And there was the very real need for fast to be incorporated into the diet because at certain times of the year, like during late winter, the period of Lent, coincidentally, there wasn't a whole lot of meat left over from the autumn butchering. But Calvin believed that Rome made it all way too strict. He thought that the Pope made it seem like changing your diet was actually a form of worship. And he thought that people should abide by the spirit rather than the letter of the law. In England, there were some different opinions. Hugh Latimer said that God gave mankind liberty to eat all manner of clean beasts. Just because the Romans had written some dates down on a calendar, that didn't change the right that God gave people. Catholics at this point were fasting, not eating meat or taking away one meal a day, close to a third of the year by this point. Everyone fasted on Fridays, also the weekdays during Lent, and Saturdays and sometimes Wednesdays. Even Latimer agreed that there were some dietary limitations, like cannibalism and gluttony, for example, and he also warned people not to offend neighbors with eating should they choose not to fast. Latimer urged people not to destroy anyone with their meat. While Latimer was urging patience, some Calvinists wanted their followers to offend, telling people to go ahead and have feasts on Fridays to instruct their backward brethren. Latimer also said that of course it was the king who decided what people could and couldn't eat, and people should observe their local laws. He said, although scripture commandeth me not to abstain from flesh upon Fridays and Saturdays, yet for all that, seeing there is civil law and ordinance, we ought to obey. Those early reformers believed that Cranmer and Henry, who was still king at this point, were making concessions to Catholics when they kept the fast rules. Even Cranmer had scandalized by eating meat on the feast of St. Thomas Becket. By the 1550s, though, Calvin was connecting fasting to penitence and prayer, and so the fasts remained. But for England, there was actually another reason to fast, and that was for worldly and civil policy. Under Edward, counselors told parishioners to spare flesh and use fish on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and in 1548 edward the 6th proclamation explained why consumer restraint eating fish would actually allow thinned out herds to recover also while there was abundant meat on the market fishing had declined and with it the abilities of sailors and mariners a switch to fish would provide the incentive to rebuild fleets and train crews and defend this realm on every part environed with the seas Fasting basically was good policy for the country. Martin Bucer, who was visiting Cranmer, bemoaned this policy. He was sad that the civil fast coincided with the Catholic fast days, and he said that Edward should avoid agreeing with the Antichrist. He believed that fasts were okay, but people should have the freedom to choose their own schedule. Cranmer's chaplain, Thomas Beacon, wrote a treatise about proper fasting. Dedicating it to Cranmer, he claimed that it was the very first such work in our English tongue. He said that Cranmer was helping to sift through the tares to find the wheat that was left from the Catholics. Beacon then said he was going to weed out the errors that prevented fasting from being rightly used. So he believed that Catholics used fasting as part of custom and fear rather than true repentance and prayer. Sinners would fast rather than give up their sin. Beacon concluded that fasting was necessary for as a man in a filthy glass seeth not himself such as one he is indeed. So likewise, if he be overladen with too much eating and drinking, thinketh himself to be another manner of man than he is. Yea, then he is provoked into sensuality. Ooh, we can't have that. But if the body be kept in order, accustomed to fasting, then doth the soul know the better, with what devotion she ought to serve her Redeemer. Lent was the perfect time for a fast. It was, after all, the season for the soul and the spirit, not for eating. People gave up all sorts of things they liked and anything that seemed like sensuality. Roman Catholics often claimed that Reformers were all faith and no fasting, while Beacon would say that Catholics were all fasting and no faith accusing them of stressing the importance of rules and rewards for fasting that they forgot so much the fruits and merits of Christ's passion. Beacon wrote that the true Christian fast is done freely and willingly, whereas the popish and superstitious fast serveth the custom only and is done at the commandment of men with grudging and unwilling minds. By the 1550s, though, the mid-1550s, it wasn't just the policy because of the need to train up fishermen. England had gone back to Roman Catholicism. Some of the Marian martyrs specifically mentioned fasting at the end, like John Philpot, who, before he was executed, said that Christians were bound unto these fasts by no laws. In the very early days of Elizabeth's reign, as the exiles were coming back and Archbishop Parker was getting the house in order, there wasn't any effort made to really end the fasting. The fasts were still on the calendar, which looked very much like the Catholic one. Some reformers were angry about this, but in general, they seemed happy that so much progress had been made. Cramer's prayer book was back in circulation, and many of the other customs were ending. But as Kaufman says, inadvertently, the government's caution and Queen's disinclination to persecute kept England's Catholics relatively calm during the 1560s. Without occasion to stir up opposition, Catholic leadership seemed resigned to the slow, easy erosion of their commitment. Parish officials were also very cautious, and sometimes they followed the orders to get rid of the rude lofts and all of the different utensils needed for mass very slowly. And people would say that, you know, maybe they still were holding on to their Catholic beliefs, but it also could have just been prudence because by 1558, every 30-year-old had experienced three changes in regime and religion. Some of the reformers did tell Elizabeth at the beginning of her reign that they wanted to end the superstitious practice of fasting. Among them were the leadership at Cambridge, which brings us back to Sanderson. Sanderson argued that fasting on prescribed days and in prescribed ways was neither hypocritical nor superstitious. Dietary restrictions, he said, originated in Christian antiquity. And if the church's fathers, being of so ripe and perfect judgment, did err, ye must give me leave if I err. But several passages he cited seemed to contrast rather than support his position. There were also some passages that he quoted from Augustine. In his fastum, for example, Augustine acknowledges that Christians of the time observed the same days and times for fasting, but did so, quote, more or less as they wished or were able. The university, of course, began to investigate Sanderson's beliefs, as one does, and they questioned two colleagues, Misters West and Green, who said that Sanderson bought books by a minister, Johannes Hofmeister, saying that these books were fit and worthy and should be translated for the English people. Hofmeister had been a Catholic apologist, and he corresponded with members of the Council of Trent, looking for ways to compromise. He believed that Christians should fast because fasting was one of the disciplines of obedience, but he also said that there weren't specific days and diets that one had to follow. In Sanderson's papers, it's clear that he was going through the Old and New Testaments to find evidence of what fasting meant, picking up a particular passage in Ecclesiastes, which would later be translated by English Catholics in Douai as, Blessed is the land, Whose king is noble and whose princes eat in due season for refreshment, not for riotousness. There are, of course, lots of verses in the Bible dealing with fasting, and Sanderson had compiled an exhaustive list. Eventually, after a great deal of pressure from the authorities, he gave in. Whereas I said I had thought the observances of days and differences of times had been imported by three places of scriptures Numbers 1, Samuel 14, Ecclesiastes 10. I think now and willingly confess that neither this nor any other place of the whole scriptures, to my knowledge, does import an unnecessary abstinence from kind of meat and drink any one especial day more than any other. Still, Sanderson was let go. Alexander Noel, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, was pleased, saying that Sanderson had shown the obstinance of papists. Sanderson's enemies at Trinity also referred to Rome complaining of cloaked papistry when they mentioned Sanderson's manifest contempts of authority and want of reverence never seen before in Trinity College. Sanderson tried to defend himself with this apology that except for his regrettable superstitious doctrine of fasting, he said, I am, and I have always been, no man is able to prove the contrary, conformable in all points of religion. Sanderson soon left for Europe, and presumably a more Catholic country. Trinity authorities said that he had been mostly fired for his dismissiveness of the charges against him. Dean Noel and some of the Queen's commissioners for ecclesiastical causes weren't in the mood to let accusations that he speaks slanderously against the seniors slide. They said Sanderson slandered seniors and scolds at Trinity College by insisting that he was troubled by them for a thing of naught. That year, Parliament also started to make meatless Wednesdays a thing in order to improve the preparedness of the Navy. William Cecil bemoaned what he saw as the kingdom being defenseless with not enough sailors to put the few ships they did have to sea. Fishing was a career that trained up mariners, but the market kept men in other professions because there were so few fish eaters in the 1560s. Even those who were still giving up meat for superstition were having a hard time finding fish at markets. Opponents saw it as a return to Rome, so Parliament added in a provision to the bill, saying, because no manner of person shall misjudge the intent of this statute, limiting orders to eat fish and to forbear eating of flesh, but that the same purposely, politically, for the increase of fishermen and mariners, and for repairing of port towns and navigation, and not for any suspicion to be maintained in the choice of meats be yet enacted that whoever shall by preaching, teaching, writing, or open speech notify that any eating of fish and forbearing of flesh mentioned in this statute is of any necessity for the saving of the soul of man, or that it is in service to God or otherwise than as other politic laws are, and be, then such persons shall be punished as spreaders of false news. Parliament wanted to make everyone aware that this was a fast for economics, not religion. Churches were soon learning the differences between Catholic and reforming fasting. Soon after Sanderson left Trinity, church wardens at Great St. Mary's, a short walk from the college, hired several carpenters to tear down the rude loft. The next year, the parish paid for a homily book that certainly would have explained the new reformed explanation of fasting. But, as one Catholic critic claimed, the new preachers and Protestants did not observe their fasts. In fifteen thirty six, Bishop Grindal of London grudgingly admitted that Catholics have an advantage in the matter of fasts which we utterly neglect. Reformers countered that Catholics only fasted so well because they were bullied into it, believing that it was only through fasting that they would be saved. Either way, during this time church authorities were becoming very sensitive to ideas of fasting. To some it looked like heresy, and to others it was gross popery people were trying to figure out how and when fasting made sense. They didn't want to participate in what they saw as Catholic superstitions using the Catholic calendar, but they also recognized that fasting was an important part of their religious practice. Plus, England needed people eating fish. By the 1580s, fasts were part of the regular Reformed religious expression, even in the Puritan sect. Biblical verses supporting fasting were rediscovered, and the idea of having a collective expression of penitence for sorrow, for prayer, was quickly becoming a part of the Puritan belief system. Fasting was also seen as important for private religious experience, too. Nicholas, bound in Suffolk, told his parish to fast before hearing his sermons, which would allow them to experience the genuine humility that would make them more alert recipients of the word. Fast before prayer would make them more sincere supplicants. He thought it possible that fasting and general self-abasement could be understood as efforts to please God, but more properly, they ought to signal the inadequacy of one's striving to appease or please. Other preachers like Richard Rogers said that fasting helped them to focus, saying it was a prod to greater godliness. Other preachers like Richard Rogers said that fasting helped them to focus, saying it led them to greater godliness. Robert Lineker, another preacher, said that fasting's affliction was an aid to introspection. But still, fasting should not be timed to the days of the Catholic Church. That much was always certain. Also, people should never say one meat was more important than another. So eventually things came back full circle, as they so often do. Fasting was part of the Anglican tradition, but not on the days prescribed by the Catholics. Still, that was too late for Sanderson. After being expelled from Trinity, he went to Rome and then to France. He had to leave because of the religious wars and disturbances going on there. He was there right around the time of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and he retired into Flanders. In 1570, he was enrolled among the students of the English College at Douai. He was ordained a priest, and then he became the Doctor of Divinity in the university there. In 1580, he went to Reims in the company with Dr. Allen and became a divinity professor at the English college there. And he was then appointed a canon of the cathedral church at Cambrai, which he retained until he died in 1602. So we're going to leave it there this week. Notes and sources are at englandcast.com slash fasting. You can also hop into the Tudor Learning Circle, TudorLearningCircle.com to discuss this and all other things Tudor. Remember, you can still get the 2023 Tutor Planner this holiday season, and you can still get a ticket to TudorCon, englandcast.com slash TudorCon for those hot tickets, September 9th through 11th. It's going to be a lot of fun. I hope to see you there. Anyway, thanks so much for listening and for all your ongoing support and messages and patience with me as I disappear and reappear. It's like a magic trick. You're never quite sure where I'll turn up. <laughs> I'll be back again soon, though. I'm settled. I have a home. I have furniture. I'm not nomadic anymore. I can get on a schedule and uh, be back regularly. So thank you for your patience with me. And I will speak with you again soon. <laughs> Bye. Blow northern
1: wind A sweating Blow northern wind Blah 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 echo to bording barbricht that solis semis on seek men's full maiden of meek fair and fray to fonder in all this warfish a wonder of blood
0: Many bishops wanted to allow for people to negotiate between what was part of the culture and what was seen as necessary for Protestantism. Can't talk. Other preachers like Richard Rodley
1: Who is <laughs> Daryl Worth in die, a gratio's <laughs> a stolen guy. Gentle Jolly so the jay, warfleaks when he walketh. Mighty merriest of both, beast be west, be north and south. There is fiel and a that suits mirth. to Raise me hands, so salt, seeking sorrowing and thought. Though three may hand in battle brought, I the power of peace. Blow northern wind, send for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, oh, blow, blow. For here a call. For here love lovey drubnandal. For here For here love in sleep is laid. For here love won't need For here love morning imaka makes more than any man. Blow, northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Blow, northern wind, send for baby sweating. Low